And so what he does in the beginning of the book is he begins to lay out this case for forgiveness. And he begins by assuring Philemon that he has a heart that is capable of forgiving. Um, really, the work of God and the hand of God in Philemon's life was evident for everybody who knew him. They, they saw that he was a great man of faith in Christ. They saw that he was a man who loved other people. Both of these are, are just really uh, unique characteristics or primary characteristics of somebody who has truly been born again, who has truly been saved, their hearts being regenerated of God. And if they are truly born again, then that heart that God has regenerated is a heart that is certainly capable of forgiving other people who have sinned against them. And so by explaining all that in the first part of this book or in this letter, what Philemon in essence did was he answered a question for us. The question is, can I forgive? And see, that's a question that many of us ask. If you've really been hurt, if you've really been sinned against in a serious way or over a long period of time, sometimes we're asking ourselves, do I have the ability within me to actually forgive another person and what they've wronged? Well, the answer according to Paul is yes. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the ability to forgive other people no matter what it is that they've done against you and what they've done against me. But that's only one question that needed to be answered. Paul answered it. There's another question now that needs to be answered, and that is, should I forgive? Should I forgive? See, that's a question that is probably even more often asked. Uh, People say, look, I know that God is telling me to forgive, but give me one good reason why I should forgive this particular person. Maybe you've said or used those words, or maybe, uh, somebody, maybe somebody else said that against you. Hey, give me one reason why I should forgive you right now, and maybe you couldn't come up with a really good reason except for, please, you know? You, you, you didn't know. Well, Paul understands that it's going to be difficult for Philemon to forgive, and he also understands that if he is going to forgive, that it is going to take more than him just assuring him that he has a heart that can forgive He's got to convince his mind that he should forgive, all right? We all have to be convinced this morning. Should we ultimately forgive a person who has harmed us? See, Paul knew that Philemon lived in a world, a fallen world, that would do everything that it possibly could to pressure believers into doing things the world's way and not God's way. And for the world, the way of the world is not forgiveness and restoration. The way of the world is vengeance, bitterness, against whoever it is who has harmed us. It's about giving and dispensing um, a pound of flesh, if you will, against those who have ultimately harmed us. And so what we find here is this, is that Paul knows that he's got to somehow convince Philemon that he ought to forgive. And so that's what this section is about. It's what Paul does. He basically answers the question, should we forgive? Now, let me, let me tell you this. If you were to read several different commentators and different, uh, different views of this text, uh, there would be several commentators that would give you like six or seven different reasons. One author gave 10 different, said that, that, that Paul gives us 10 different reasons on why we should forgive those that sin against us. Well, apparently I'm not very bright and don't amen that, okay? Uh, because I only see one. All right. I mean, that's pretty bad. John MacArthur's like, there's seven. Another guy's like, there's eight. Another one's like, there's at least 10 in here reasons why you should forgive. I get done and I'm like, I see one reason. All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm making it easy on you. I'm not going to give you 10 points. Everyone said, I see, oh, that was, whoa, you never say that. But anyway, amen. I'm just going to give you one reason this morning that I believe that the word of God is telling us that we ought, that we should forgive those 
that have sinned against us. Here it is. You, you read, don't miss it because there's only one of them. So, so here's the point. We should forgive others. Why? Because forgiveness is consistent with our calling. It is consistent with our calling. And that's what I think that Paul says in this section that we're about to study. I don't think there's a bunch of different points. I think a lot is going on that we're going to see in just a minute. But I think it all backs up this, this essence of why should we forgive? Because it is consistent with who we are. It is consistent with our calling in Christ. So let's, let's kind of work through this. And, and actually, I, I just have three questions that we're going to answer. First of all, what is this calling that Paul is referring to? Why does this calling bear or, or, or convince us that we need to forgive? Well, follow along in your text, if you will. Verse 8, he begins with the word accordingly. That's just another way of saying therefore. Or Paul is saying, in light of everything, guys, uh, uh, Philemon, that we know about you that you're a man of faith, that you are a man of love towards other people. In light of all of that, therefore, now note, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, when Paul says that statement, I, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, he's not being arrogant. He's not being big-headed. He's not trying to be forceful with Philemon. He's just merely stating a fact. And the fact is, Paul has authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, has been given authority by Christ to make sure that Philemon is doing what is right according to the word of God. Uh, you say, where did he get that kind of authority? Well, when you look back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, there in, in even in chapter 18, uh, Jesus takes his disciples aside. And he, he gives this, this phrase that, that has confused a lot of people. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, there's a lot of confusion with what Jesus means here. Let me try to put it in the simplest possible way. What Jesus was saying to his disciples and also to the apostles at the time was this, was that he was going to give them a special authority that he was going to give them to appropriately apply the scriptures to the local churches, all right? So those weird terminologies like the keys and, and, and being bound in heaven and being loosed on earth, those are all old rabbinic terms that speak of a person's ability to discern the word of God rightly and to apply it to everyday life accurately. Now, it is true that God has given us all this ability, given us all authority to interpret the word of God and, and to be able to apply it to ourselves. Why? Because we're indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the big points, the priesthood of the believer that the, that the reformers argued about. Uh, they came upon the scene and said, no, only few people can understand the word and appropriately apply it. That's why we have a pope. But the word of God, we believe that God has given us all that authority However, when Jesus makes this command, in essence, what he was saying is, yes, all will receive this authority, but I'm giving you a great authority within this apostolic age for you to steer and direct this young church. Okay, so, so get this. Almost all of these uh, uh, apostles, uh, uh, disciples walked with Jesus, were taught by Jesus. Like Apostle Paul, he was taught by Jesus himself. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus appeared to him. He was taught out in the wilderness for a number of years by Christ all that time. So here's what's happening. The church is growing like crazy. 5,000 people come to faith just in one day. The church is continuing to be able to grow. Churches are popping up everywhere. And guess what? They're all new believers in Christ. 
There's no mature believers anywhere to be found. So Jesus has to set apart some leaders that can oversee these churches until some of these young men within the church are raised up and can become elders within the church. Does that make sense? So this is what Paul is saying when he says, I have the authority to tell you or to command you to do what is required. That's what he's referring to. The, 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 the authority that is given to him was given to him by Jesus Christ himself. And then when he says to do what is required, he's speaking of his duty or, or what is uh, was appropriate for him to do. Now, what should uh, Philemon do? What is the appropriate thing for him to do? Well, it depends on who you ask. And we're talking about the issue of Onesimus. The world would come to him and say, the appropriate thing for you to do is to nail that sucker, Right? What you need to do is you need to teach him a lesson and teach all the other slaves a lesson that you don't mess with we, the slave owners, and you need to keep him in his place and you need to make sure that justice reigns and you need to make sure that nobody else even thinks about doing what Onesimus ultimately did. Paul comes on the scene though and says, listen, you may have all those other authorities, but the word of God is even a greater authority to you because you are now a believer in Jesus Christ. And God has given me the authority exclusively to come and to make sure you do what is right according to the word of God. I've got the right to force you to do what is right, to command you to do what is right. But then Paul backs off and then he tells him, he says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to strong arm you, he says. He says this, instead he says, yet. So in, instead of, in light of all that, he says, yet for love's sake, underline that, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul knows Philemon. He knows Philemon's, uh, he, he knows his reputation. This is a godly man. This is a, this is a man who wants to do the will of God. This is a, a man who, who is evidence that he is doing it each and every day. Everybody sees that. So he knows that he doesn't have to strong arm Philemon to do what the word of God is calling him to do. Instead, he just needs to come to him and give him kind of a a gentle nudge. And the gentle encouraging nudge is this. That's actually what the word appeal means. It means to exhort or to encourage. And the way that he encourages him just to kind of do what is right is by appealing to him how for love's sake. That's actually the answer right there. It's the answer to the question, why should we forgive? That's it, for love's sake. Now, let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. Last week, we looked and saw the teaching of Paul in 1 Thessalonians where he told the believers, he said, you have no need of me teaching you how to love one another because God himself taught you how to love one another. In other words, through, through God sending his son, Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ to give his life on the cross, he goes, there's your example, There's your example of how to love one another, sacrifice yourself for each other for the good of the other person, right? He he said, he said, Jesus or God taught us that, but he only, he didn't just teach us how to love one another. He also commanded us to love one another. Do you remember when they come to Jesus and they say, man, we've got so many commands, Jesus, but what is the greatest commandment? You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What did he mean by that? He just meant, Love Jesus with everything you have and everything you are. It's just all has to be about Jesus. But then, even though he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus slips in. I call it the Jesus juke, right? Jesus sits there and goes, I'll give you one, but now I'm going to give you two, all right? And here it is. The second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does he add that to the greatest commandment? Because Jesus understands the only way we can possibly show that we love God is to love those who are around us. We show that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength 
by sacrificing ourselves, looking after the interest of people who are all around us. Do you, do you get that? So God, he says, if you love me, what are we going to do? We're going we're to show our love towards God by loving and caring and meeting the needs of the people around us, our neighbors, in our neighbor love. So Jesus tells us, hey, who, who our neighbor is. It's basically everyone, and he explains it through the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. But Paul tells us a little bit more and unpacks a little bit more of what it looks like to actually love our neighbor. Now catch this. Stick with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you take your needs, you take your wants, you take your well-being, and you suppress those in order to lift up and raise up and champion the, the needs and the well-being of everybody else around you. And when you do it, it will come as a great personal expense to you. You got that? In other words, it's going to be a sacrifice. We see it in marriage. Jesus comes, or, or Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 5, ladies, what are we supposed to do? You submit, submit yourself to your husband as, as the church submits themselves to Christ. But then he very quickly, come, people are smiling, go back and listen to that sermon, okay? Uh, um, but, but what happens is there is, is he, then he trumps that. The wife is sitting there going, oh my goodness, what does that mean? It means that you have to give up all your rights and, and, and all of my desires and all these things. I just got to lay them down to, for my husband to deal with? Then he calls to the husband, and this is what he says. He says, husbands, you were to love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave his life for them. What did he mean? He says, now that she's laid them down, now you champion them. You pick them up and you raise them up. And you take, you take, you take her rights and her well-being and you raise them up above your own. And you do it as a great personal expense to yourself. Okay? So this is what God calls us to. This is what God has called you to be as a believer. How are you supposed to live in light of love, the law of love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself? How do we do it? One way, we champion the needs, we champion the good of other people, we champion the well-beings of other people at personal expense to us. Are you hearing what, I, you hearing what he's saying here? He's saying, Philemon, the reason that you need to forgive is because this is who you now are. You need to forgive because this is the calling of God on your life. The calling of God in your life popular, against popular belief is not for you to be comfortable. It's for you to seek the well-being of other people at great personal expense to yourself. And that is what happens when we talk about forgiveness. When you forgive somebody, it's going to cost you something. It's immensely difficult. Listen, we're going through this series on forgiveness. It's amazing that anybody has shown up because basically to seek to forgive somebody else, it's a real hassle. Would you, would you, I mean, you're like, oh man, now I got to dig something up from the past. I got to find this joker out. I got a million things I got to be able to do. I got to talk with a guy that I don't like to be able to begin with. And now I got to hash this out. Thank you. Tell me when the series is over, right? And because it's, it's hard. It's, it's difficult, but the reason that he does it is he says, because it's the very reason in which you've been called. You have been called to love God and demonstrating it by loving each other, champion the good of other people at great personal expense to yourself. Now, he's saying this, but he knows that this is not a popular message, okay? You don't build megachurches built on this idea of suffering. You, you with me? And so what happens is he knows that he's, he's going to have to convince them. But Paul always wants to make sure that he knows, everyone knows that he practices what he preaches. 
He's not just commanding something to somebody. He's not just saying, hey, man, you need to suck it up. You're called to suffer. Suffer for the well-being of everybody else. He's not doing that. He goes, he, 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 what he does is he gives an example. He actually shows them what this looks like, okay? Now, notice this, what it looks like. Paul says, I, Paul, I can't help it. When my wife comes in, she's so beautiful. I just, I just, nothing, you know, screaming babies I'm good with. My beautiful wife, I just, I just stop and see her. So anyway, uh, you messed me up. So anyway, so let me see this. So anyway, so what does it look like to be an idiot? Well, here you go. All right. So what does this calling look like in, in, our, in, in our life? Well, here it is. He says, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. The word old there is where we get our English word presbyter from or, um, or pastor from or elder from. And so what some have suggested is that he's using this again to talk about how much authority he has. But that would make sense, would it? Because we just found out he did everything he could to say, hey, I've got the authority, but I'm not gonna use that authority. I'm not gonna try to strong arm you at all. I'm just, I'm calling you for the sake of, uh, of love here. So, so I think the ESV actually does a good translation here when he uses it as a translation of old because the word can also speak of somebody's age. And so we know that he is old here. Now, don't be offended. He's, 60 year, he's about 60 years old at the time. And we know 60 is the new 50. Now, uh, we, we, we get that, especially the closer I get to those ages. And, um, and so what we know is, is, is Paul is 60 years of age, which would have been tremendously old during the time. But he was much older than his 60 years. Why? Because this guy had really, really suffered, really suffered. When we look to the book of 2 Corinthians 11, 21 through 28, we read that he had a number, a number of imprisonments that he had taken part in. This isn't his first. We read about his countless beatings, countless beatings, Five times he had, he had received 40 lashes minus one. With a cat of nine tails, he received 39 lashes five different times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. And the list goes on and on again on how he was hungry and how he was tired and how he was weary and how he was weak and, and, and how he was cold and how he was without a home. He, he goes on with all of this stuff. Now the question is, why does Paul do all this? Why does he go through all of that suffering? Well, the easiest answer is even what he says here, he did it for the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it for Jesus Christ. See the words, a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. Of course he did it for Jesus Christ. But who was the beneficiary of all of, all of his suffering? Everyone around him, his fellow man. The reason he was beaten, the reason he was flogged, the reason he was in prison was all for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you, would you agree? He shares the gospel, he gets thrown in jail. He shares the gospel, he gets stoned. He shares the gospel, he's beaten. He's doing it all so that the glory, God would be glorified. As the gospel goes out, people get saved. God is now glorified. Yes, would you agree with that? But who is the beneficiary? Those who hear the gospel. Apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved as he's propagating the gospel, as he's suffering for it. He's demonstrating brotherly love to them. Why? Because he's putting their own interest above his own personal, physical interest. I think we see a classic example of this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. Just listen to this just for a moment. Be captured by what he's saying here. He says, one of my favorite passages, he says, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is he saying? He says, for me, the only thing I live for is Jesus Christ. I live for Christ. Therefore, if I die, then I Death is gain for me. Why? Because I receive and I get the very, the very thing that I'm living for. Who is that? Jesus Christ. I get him. 
And then he's really, he's really confused here. He's really struggling here. He says, if I am to live on in the flesh, if I keep living, that means fruitful labor for you. He's going to continue to be there and help them and share the gospel to them. He says, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. It's far better, is it not? Uh, I mean, think about it for, for, for Paul. Look, some of you guys, old football injury guys, right? I mean, you walk around here. Somehow, some of you guys, I love you to death, but unfortunately, you peaked in high school, right? And, uh, and what I mean by that is, is to some of us, we gimp around like this, and you're like, hey, man, what's wrong? Oh, old, old football injury. Really? We're, as though you, you, you played in the NFL, right? And, and you're like, yeah, you know, JV, junior high, man. You know, uh, big, big bruiser Bruce came up and just hit me in the nail, and I've never been the same never been the same since. Well, I, I know what it's like to begin aging quickly. Uh, a couple years ago, four years ago, right, I had my neck kind of cut on and had to get a disc replaced and the rods and the screws and all that other stuff goes on there. And they tell you, hey, no problem. You can do whatever you want from here on out. Liar, right? <laughs> you hurt, a little bit of weather. You're like, what's going on? My neck's going to explode. Well, it's raining out. Raining out makes my neck want to explode, Right? And so you go through this. Now stop and think about it. You and I, with those difficulties, now think of the pain that Paul must have gone through each and every day. And do you see what he was calling? He was sitting there and said, man, it's much better for me to go home and be with Jesus. Much better for me. But notice this. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, now note this last thing. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see what he's saying? He's saying, my own interest is to go home to be with Jesus. I'd rather just be with him. Pain would go away, difficulty, but even more than that, I don't care about all that. I just want to be with my Jesus. It's a lot better than being with you bunch of chickens, all right, that kind of thing. But he sits there and he says, but it's better for you. Do you see the, the neighbor love? Do you see the brotherly love? He's sitting there and saying, here are my desires. Here is my well-being. Here are my needs. Here are my wants. But I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to submit those below and I'm going to exalt yours. And when I exalt yours, it's going to cause me even greater pain in doing so. And so what he's doing is he's showing, he's showing Philemon, he's giving him a picture. He says, listen, I'm not telling you something that I haven't lived out myself. I'm telling you that this is the call of God on your life and you know my history. You know my entire life is an example of this type of living, but he doesn't stop in the past. He keeps moving to the forward. He's not like you and I are like, yeah, I used to do some great things for God like 20 years ago and then we still live in the past. He sits there and says, but I need to continue. And so now what he does as he begins to show that same love now for Philemon. Notice what he says. He says, I appeal to you for my child, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, what he's talking about here is that, not, that Onesimus was not his biological son, but he was a spiritual son. That is that he had led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've ever led somebody to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, there's just a special bond there. There's just a special connection. Some would say even greater even than the physical bond between a, a, a father and his child. So there's a huge bond there. And he comes to them and he says, here's what he works out. He says, formerly he was useless to me, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that you might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but for your own accord. Now, 
what Paul's doing in the beginning part of that is he's doing really kind of a play on words. The word Onesimus literally means useful and profitable, but he's not been very useful or profitable to Philemon, has he? But what he's saying is, but now he's been born again. Now he's been changed. And everybody that God saves, he changes, amen? There's no saved person that he hasn't changed. He changed their hearts. He changed who they are. And now this useless fellow has now become useful and profitable. How would he have been profitable to him? Well, stop and think about it again. All of his aches and pains in jail, he was there to be able to nurture him, to be able to help him, to be able to help him with food, to be able to help him with comfort. You know, he might get a knot in his neck. I don't know what it is. You know, can you work that out? I don't know what he's doing, but he would have been there in a great help for him. And so for him to give him up, would have been at a great expense. For him to send him back to Philemon, guys, that would have been a great personal expense to himself. What would it have cost him? Well, emotionally, it would have been an emotional expense. This is his son. He, he goes on to say that I'm sending my very heart. He loves this young man. It gives him joy to be able to be around it, but yet he sees that there's a greater need for Philemon and Onesimus that Onesimus needs to be reconciled, that Onesimus needs to have and feel that forgiveness and what it's like to be forgiven by Philemon. Philemon needs to know what it's like to extend that forgiveness. The whole church at Colossae, where all this is going to be taking place, where this letter would have been read eventually, is, is ultimately, guess what? Needs to see what true forgiveness looks like. People living 2,000 years later here in Yuli, Florida, need to know what it looks like. So for the benefit of us all, and to the detriment to himself, he sits back and says, even now I'm extending this type of brotherly love for you. I'm sending him back because this is what God has called us to. Not only my past, but even right now in dealing with you, this is what God has ultimately called me to. He even goes on and he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So he's sitting back and he gives him up. So here we see the example. What is the call? The call is to edify. Just follow with me. The call is the call to love for the sake of love. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Demonstrating that love by loving each other. By doing what? By raising up the needs and well-being of other people at great personal expense to us. Paul then shows that he has lived this out. It's possible for all who are believers in Jesus Christ. He's lived this out through his whole life and all his suffering has been for this cause. And now he's either even enduring more discomfort, more suffering by sending back this young man for the, better, for the benefit of everybody who is involved. We see what it looks like here. But the question is, what does this ultimately mean to you and I? What it means to you and I is that there is a great cost when it comes to forgiving other people. It's great cost in it. It's why it's difficult to do. It's why people aren't wanting to do it because it's, it's a hard thing to be able to do. And many times we all sit back and we'll say, well, the reason if I forgive, this will happen and this will happen and this will be hard. And every time we give a reason of the difficulty it is for forgive, all we're doing is giving more evidence of why we should. Because God says it's the very life that God has called you to, to do very difficult things and experiencing very difficult pains for the sake of other people. That's the demonstration of love that we're supposed to be giving. I think there's two specific ways that we suffer. Just follow with me just very quickly. I think there is an outward cost. I think there's an outward cost to this whole thing. You know, when someone uh, has done us wrong, 
uh, our initial response. That's right, you, your initial response, not just me. I know it's easy to say, well, you're the sinner. I, I know, I am. But here's our initial response. Tell everybody we possibly can of how we've been wronged, right? I've been wronged. Put it on Facebook, I guess. I don't know. That would be messed up. But anyway, I don't know if people are Facebooking how people have wronged them now. Uh, I don't Facebook. So uh, they're texting people. You, you get hurt at, at, at work, and what do you want to do? Immediately, honey, I got to tell you what happened to me. You would not believe what this guy did, or you would not believe that this girl did. We just want to share it, right? With, with, with it. And because here, here, here's the idea, is we take pleasure in the shock, a sick pleasure, twisted pleasure in, in, the, in, in, in the shock of other people when they hear how we've been mistreated by other people. And what we do is we begin to kind of be comforted by them, right? We begin to look like the victim. I, I'm the victim here. Other people have hurt me. Then people come around you and they say, oh, that is a bad, bad thing. That person is terrible for what they've done. You don't deserve this. And in a weird, twisted way, that begins kind of comforting, right? Because what they're doing is the person that hurts you, you actually want to hurt them back. You actually want to rebel against them. You want to retort against them by going back after them. But this is a much smarter way to do it. Because if you can get other people to say horrible things about them and you could sit back and enjoy it, you look like you are not trying to retaliate. You just sit back and you're like, I'm the victim. But really the whole time you're enjoying how people are downing that person and, and downing their name and downing their reputation. And so we, you kind of sit back. And so the difficulty is people coddle you and they, and they love you and they go, man, we're so sorry for your suffering. And you know what? We like to be coddled. We like to play the victim. It makes us look good. It makes our spouse or whoever it is that has harmed us, it makes them look bad. It's the same thing with churches, right? I don't even know what to think. Here, let me just say this. I understand churches hurt people. People hurt people. I have been hurt by churches. Churches have been hurt by me. Get it? You, you, you understand how the whole thing? But what people love to do is they love to play the victim. They love to come in and they love to be able to say, man, I was really hurt by this church. I was really hurt by this preacher. I was really hurt by these people. Sometimes, guess what? I'm just gonna tell you, it happens. It happens. And if you're coming here, I don't know why I'm going this way, but maybe, maybe it's for you. But if you're coming here and you're like, I'm just hoping to be able to find a place that's not gonna hurt me, I'm sorry. Somehow, some way, we're gonna hurt you and you're gonna actually intricately love it. Because you love going around telling everybody how people have injured you and how people have harmed you. Because it makes you look so good. It makes everybody else look so bad. It keeps the focus off of your sin because it draws attention to somebody else. And here's what I'm saying to you. That's difficult to give up. It's difficult to give up. But it's the very thing that you have to, that you have to give up in order to be able to forgive somebody else. There is an, are you guys tracking with me on that? There's an outward cost, but there's also an inward cost. Holding a grudge against someone for, for the sins that they have committed against us often serves as a type of comfort therapy for us. When we refuse to forgive, we can continually take that wrong that someone has done for us, and we can throw it up in their face each and every time they begin to cross us. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're in one of those relationships. And listen, if I don't really forgive this person, I can harbor bitterness in me. And, and that's another way of retaliation, by the way. Look, they hurt me and I look innocent because they were the one that did me wrong. It's okay for me to be embittered for them. It's okay for me to be angry with them. And if they cross me again, we'll start a relationship. But if we start it and if they do something wrong, I've got this in my back pocket, man. I'm just gonna pull it right out and I'm gonna remind them and put them in their place. 
what it does is it causes you to be in control of the relationship. It's used to manipulate other people to get them to do what it is that you want them to do. But to truly forgive the person, we have to give that up. You have to give that up. That's what I mean about humbling ourselves. That's what I mean about coming to the point and saying, hey, listen, this is not all about me. I need to humble myself. I understand that there's people out here who need forgiveness, who need reconciliation. And even though they've harmed me, I need to put their needs and their well-being above my own. I'm going to cut this stuff off, and I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to do it for the sake of love. Now, Paul says something here at the end uh, that I love. Look at verse 14. He says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might be, not might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So here's what he's saying. He, he's been very careful not to manipulate anything that's going on, not to force anything that's going on. In the beginning, he goes, I've got, I've, I've got authority to be able to command you to, to forgive somebody, all right? So, so here's the deal. He, he didn't use it. We're not going to use it. Okay, I know most of you are bigger than me, but we have enough elders in this place that we could probably handle you, all right? And so we're not gonna grab you and take you into my office and t- bring in whoever you have conflict with and say, now sit there like a little kid and go, now you say you're sorry, right? What, what a relief, right? That, that we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna strong arm you to do it. Uh, we're not gonna try to manipulate you. We're not gonna sit there and go, man, we pour our hearts off and we suffer for the gospel. And can't you just do this one thing for me? I don't, I don't think that's really what Paul was doing at all. Even though some commentators say that that's what he's doing. He's kind of manipulating through emotion. I don't think that. We could, oh, I could have manipulated y'all this morning pretty easy. I read some killer stories on forgiveness that have y'all balling, right? I mean, people refuse, people refuse to, to, to forgive. And the one person that could have saved their son from cancer was the one person that they wouldn't forgive. And that person went out angry and they ended up dying. And now their son died because they wouldn't forgive. I mean, that's a tearjerker, right? That's emotional. That should get us to forgive right now. We should maybe sit back and manipulate whatever way. Paul sits there and says, man, I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm not going to try to emotionally manipulate you. I'm not going to strong arm you. I'm not going to coerce you in any way to forgive and to seek reconciliation. Because all I'm seeking to do is this, is that your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. That this morning that you would forgive for love's sake and for nothing else. For nothing else. Because of your love for God, in your demonstration to show that love for God, to love other people and be willing to forgive them at great expense to yourself just for love's sake. And you say, but why should we do that? Because it's who you are in Christ. You call yourself a Christian. I call myself a Christian, which literally means a little Christ. It means that we mimic the Savior. We live like the Savior What better picture of love than Jesus Christ forgiving his life, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, for what? For the well-being of other people. It's living out the gospel once again. Some of you are gonna have a real hard time forgiving because let's face it, you're incapable of doing it because God has not regenerated your heart. Some of you this morning, you are born again. You are able And the reason for you to do it is simply for love's sake. It is consistent with who you now are in Christ. I hope that's convincing. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We love you. And we thank you this morning for your word. God, I thank you for those who are here. Now, God, we just need you to continue to work. We need you to continue to work. God, I just pray that people will leave this place convinced. 
leave convinced. If I'm a Christian, this is what we